as incredible as this might seem, it's Christmas, which means 2022 is over. We actually made it. Yeah. A lot's been said about Jesus. He is undeniably the most controversial, the most interesting, the most studied, and the most important person in history. One author wrote this, and I quote, Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 years old, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of those things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. And yet here we are. Some 2,000 years later, talking about this man named Jesus. We have been afforded the opportunity this year on Christmas Day, as it falls on the Lord's Day, amen, to slow down time a bit and contemplate a handful of reasons for Christ's coming, the reason we celebrate Christmas. And while I'm sure if we were to hand out signs and placards and note cards, we could collect and gather a plethora of reasons for which Christ came, this morning I have four specific reasons that we should celebrate Christ this Christmas. So if I have your permission, I'll continue. Amen? Amen. Our first point this morning is this. Christ came to demonstrate God's love. Christ came to demonstrate God's love. Again, if you want to chase down some Bible verses this morning, I want you to land in 1 John chapter 4, where I'm going to read the following verses, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Love is from whom? God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Did you get that? If you love, then you know the one from whom love comes. Anyone who does not love does not know God. You see this positive correlation here. Why? Because God is love. Without a doubt, when we come to the Bible and spend time reading and reflecting upon it ourselves, when we hold it and we hear it, one of the themes that stands out is undoubtedly the love of God. I mean, even one of those verses that's known by people who have never read the Bible, don't know Jesus, and have never attended church, is that Bible verse, John 3, 16, which says, God so, help me out, loved the world that he gave. He gave his only son that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And when we see a demonstration of God's love by Christ, do we have an understanding of what love is? Or are we perhaps being tutored by Jesus on what love is? In other words, do we impose upon what we see, what we think love ought to be? Or are we sitting quietly with our hand on our mouth and saying, God, I'm allowing you to tell me 
what love is. I will not presume to tell you what love is. Why is this important? Because, for example, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, God is love. Plainly, church, emphatically, church, God is love. We've been engaged in a study on Wednesday nights about the clarity of Scripture, the understandability of Scripture, how although there are some difficult passages, as any book might have, so the overall message of the Bible, the overall theme of the Bible is perspicuous. There isn't anything difficult to grasp in this verse. You and I can understand it as long as we speak the language. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. But if God is love, as the Bible teaches us, and certainly we believe this, then we must know God in order to know love. It would be inappropriate to reverse this order. Love isn't God. As many of our New Age movements would have us understand, as many as the uh, Hallmark movies would help us understand, love is not God, but God is love. And therefore, to know God is to have a healthy definition of love. When we pursue understanding in this matter, then one thing that we learn is that our definitions of love are often self-centered and selfish and quite frankly, a little difficult to comprehend. I love apple pie. I love brownies. I also love my children and my wife. Does this mean the same thing? Oh, my children and my wife hope not. But the reality of the matter is, is we use the same word for love to describe any sort of affection or interest in anything, anywhere. But in the Bible, there's a multitude of words for love. And the word that's being used here is that word agape. It's the love that we get taught to us from heaven, from God. It's a sacrificial love. It's a giving love. It's the word that is used when we hear John 3.16, that God so loved the world. That he gave. You see, church, when Christ came, he came to demonstrate for us God's love. But as we learn something about God's love, there's another factor that we must consider, and Christ taught this to us too. He taught us not only God's love, but Christ also demonstrated God's justice. This is the second point that I have for us this morning. God, through Christ, demonstrates his justice. And while it's wildly common to hear about God's love, we all hear about God's love. And rightly so, God's love, as we learned, is biblical. By comparison, we hear significantly less about God's justice. It is because justice is unattractive to us, I think. We like justice when someone steals our wallet or breaks into our house. Justice is a very clear ideal to us in that moment. But otherwise, justice is this thing that we, we like to reserve in the gray areas, not in the black and white areas, because we want everyone to fudge the truth, to lie, to be dishonest, to get their preference or their pleasure. But the reality is, for God, there is justice and there is injustice. There is not gray. 
And we argue that point. We debate that point until someone breaks into our house and suddenly we have a very clear view of what is right and wrong. Perhaps it's because as sinners, people who have broken our Creator's moral law, a law written in our hearts as well as in the Bible, we shy away from this idea of universal justice, like young children do when they accidentally break something in a room they weren't supposed to be playing in. They understand there's a wrong in this as we do too, but we are so wise that we've become too wise. We negotiate and we verbalize and we debate and we discuss these ideas that I dare say 20 years ago were pretty clear, but 200 years ago were emphatically clear, undoubtedly clear, this is the truth and this is the error. This is right and this is wrong. But why has it come to this point, church? I think it's come to this point because we're guilty of sin ourselves. A handful of verses are going to come up here on the screen. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart pure and I am clean from my sin? Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. Isaiah 59, verse 2, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned. How many have sinned? Even your grandmother. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality of the matter is, church, you and I, we stand under the judgment of a God who demands justice. He has to. He has to demand justice. But, but do we receive justice? Well, Sadly for us, sometimes, amen if you're listening, sometimes we get what we deserve as sinners. As a pastor, I often have the privilege and pleasure to meet with people in whose lives God is doing great things, and that is such a wonderful moment. But regrettably, sometimes I have to meet with people who have a different understanding of how God is working, and it is almost always a direct result of their understanding of the gospel. God loves me, therefore I can do whatever I want. And we simply don't see that taught here. So many of us are pressing up against the difficulties of life that we would like to blame on circumstances in God. But the reality of the matter is we are simply reaping what we've sown. The entire point of Christmas, the coming of Christ, is that justice has been covered for us by the gift that God has given in Christ Jesus. And forgiveness is now available to us by faith so that God is simultaneously the justifier of those who have sinned, and just because he has punished our sin in Jesus. Therefore, God has not compromised himself. 
God has not compromised his principles because sin must be punished. Oh, yes, it has to be punished. He can't just say, well, you know what? You messed up and I forget. No, because then he wouldn't be moral. Then he wouldn't be righteous. In order for God to be just, sin must be punished. But in order for us to be saved, we must be forgiven. And so here we are in this dilemma. I love these verses that I'm going to share with you now. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is not 5.21, this is 5.17, that's a typo. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, there is an an AD and a BC in our our lives too. There's a before Christ and an Anio Domini, the year of the Lord in our lives. It was like Joe before he was 19 was BC, but AD after that because Christ came into my life. Who I was then is not who I am now. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says it very beautifully. Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous, that would be Jesus, for the unrighteous. Say I. Christ suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, to what end? So that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel, church. We love Christmas. We love getting together. I got some, listen, I got to go. I got presents. But I've got Jesus. And I can do away with all the gifts. Because when I'm done limping through the 80 years that God has, if I make it, you guys are hard on me sometimes. I might not make it 80. Let's say 79. Let's say we make it through 79. When those 79 years are done, I get to meet my Savior. Not because I'm righteous, but because He is righteous. And He he made an exchange with the Father for me. He said, Father, I'll pay for his sin. And through faith, he'll be forgiven. And that's where I stand today. Like other gifts, salvation is a gift that's been paid for by somebody else. Jesus paid for that gift for us, church. Jesus paid for that gift for us so that justice would not be compromised but it would be done right. As Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why would God even offer such an amazing gift to sinners like you and me? I'm glad you asked. Third point, Christ came to demonstrate God's faithfulness. He came to demonstrate his love. He came to demonstrate his justice. But thirdly, and importantly, Christ came to demonstrate God's faithfulness. Church, I want you to find 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. It's after Romans. And as you might intuitively conclude, before 2 Corinthians. Bruce, you're hot today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to share with you a verse that I hope you will tuck away into your memory because it will be good to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. When we read the Bible and think through the circumference of the coming of Christ, 
When we think of its grandeur and purpose, I think another reason that we see for Christ's coming was to demonstrate God's faithfulness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What a magnificent verse that encapsulates so much of the weight of the gospel and so few words. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with his son. You know what faithfulness is. It's the opposite of unfaithfulness, sure. We all know that, but it's so much more than a simple antonym for unfaithfulness. Faithfulness is part of character and integrity. God is faithful. It would be wrong to say that God has faithfulness. It's not, it, would be, it would be inappropriate to say that, that God is sometimes faithful. No, what we learn from the Bible is that it is part of his character. It's part of his integrity. It is part of who he is. We cannot say, you and I, ever, in any form or fashion, that there was ever a time God wasn't faithful. Because it's part of who he is. And so when we acknowledge Christ and Christmas, the coming of the second person of the Trinity, we are acknowledging that one of the things he demonstrates to us is that God doesn't quit, that God is faithful. I want to share some verses with you, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Deuteronomy 7, 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. I love this verse. The Lord your God is God. In case you're confusing him with anybody else, you're wrong. Or in case you're confusing him with nothingness, you're wrong. Know this, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. The what kind of God? The faithful God. Get this. He keeps covenant in steadfast love with those who love him. What way, what form or fashion... What demonstration do we have that God is faithful? Moses says in Deuteronomy, he keeps his covenant. He does not quit. He holds to the cut. What if when I'm I'm unfaithful? What if when I fail? When you fail, he doesn't fail. When you're unfaithful, he is faithful. The apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he can't deny himself. For God to be unfaithful to us, would be for him to deny himself because he made us a promise in Jesus. He promised that he would love us. Psalm 86, verse 15, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 86. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help me. Faithfulness. That's who you are. It's not what you're like. It's who you are. Revelation 19.11. You know when you go to Revelation, it's a done deal. Revelation 19, verse 11. The apostle John gets a vision in heaven. And the vision in heaven is of a rider, Jesus, coming on a horse, not as a weak baby in a barn, but as a conquering king. And he has a name written on his cloak. And his name is Faithful and True. 
in a world that's breaking apart at its moral seams, in a world that sees pleasure and convenience as the two greatest ethics. What are we to do with faithfulness? It's almost like a word that's spoken in another language, something that we think we understand, but we're not entirely sure. When his people are in need, God provides for them. When his people are lost, God gives them guidance. When his people are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, he satisfies them. When God's people are lacking in faith, he inspires their belief and helps their unbelief. God is faithful. That's what Christ demonstrates to us in Christmas. He does not quit on his people. Fourthly and finally this morning, Christ came to demonstrate God's plan. Fourthly and finally, Christ came to demonstrate God's plan. If you could find the book of Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. And once you get to Galatians, find the fourth chapter. And once you find the fourth chapter, find the fourth verse. Remember what 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 is important when it comes to Christ demonstrating for us God's plan. Ultimately, my friends, we don't celebrate Christmas because we're infatuated with materialism, drunk with capitalism, or covetous beyond our own principles so that even if we are atheistic in our beliefs, we celebrate Christmas because we don't believe in Christ, but hey, everybody else is doing it, so let's collect with the clutter. Reality of the matter is, and I pray sincerely from my heart that this is the case for each and every one of you, we are here on the Lord's Day, on this Christmas Day, because we believe God has a plan Ultimately, we don't celebrate Christmas because it's an end-all event in Christianity. It's actually not. We celebrate Christmas because it leads us to Easter. And Easter tells us that death will not win over us. Easter tells us that we have a future. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. I love what Galatians says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons, or sons and daughters. That's what that means. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might have the adoption of sons and daughters. Listen, God has a plan for your life. I know sometimes we flip on a podcast, or we see an Instagram reel, or, or we see something on television, and there's some guy in a suit who has a G5 and a $10 million house saying, God has a plan for your life, and if you want to know it, send me $100. I can give you God's plan for free. I didn't charge you to come here today. 
you are sitting here on your own accord, in your own volition, unless your grandmother or somebody twisted your arm. But that's not, this is a different conversation. If you're sitting here today, I will tell you for free, it is God's plan that you're here today. God wants you to hear and be responsible for this gospel because your grandmother cannot save you. The gift of faith from God might be a gift, but it's still your faith. No one can believe on your behalf. You must make that decision yourself. And it was so important to God that he has removed the barriers in the fullness of time. That is to say, when the day came, God sent his son, born of a woman, Mary. We praise God for a faithful woman of Mary. We don't worship her, but we praise God for the woman who was Jesus' mother on earth. Born of a woman, born under the law, which is to say he was under the Mosaic law, the rules and principles that you and I live under. And yet he didn't break any of them. He lived faithfully so that when he died as a sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, the exchange could actually happen and we could learn, you and I, that we've got a future, that we've got a, we've got a plan. When we read this text, we sometimes hear that in an almost selfish sense, God has a plan for our lives. But when we read Galatians chapter 4, biblically, we learn that God has a plan for our lives. And that plan includes three things, faith, family, and forever. God's plan for your life, say my life. God's plan for your life includes faith, family, and forever. I want to share these ideas with you from Galatians chapter 4. This is where it begins with faith. It includes faith because it's God's will that you believe in his son, Jesus Christ. You say, what's God's will for my life? Should I marry him? Should I marry her? Oh, so much more complicated than that. God's will is that you believe in his son. This is the work of God, Jesus once said that you believe in him whom he has sent. You want to do God's work? You want to know what God's will is? God's will is that you believe in his son. Is your faith intact this morning? Is your soul saved this Christmas? First thing that we learn from Galatians 4 is that God sent his son that you might believe in him. Faith. Secondly, family. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 is a great thought, and it includes a number of these things, as I mentioned, and one of those things is family. Because through faith, through what? Through faith, we are initiated, we are adopted into the family of God. And so often we bump into people and, and they very argumentatively and somewhat disagreeably say, well, we're all God's children. No, no. We are all God's creation, but we are not his children. We are his children by way of adoption. I love the way C.S. Lewis said, the son of God became a man so that men might become sons of God. He did not have to be adopted. I did. If I would be in the family of God, I must be adopted. And by faith, I am adopted. And what's amazing is that in other portions of the scriptures, it tells us that I'm a full heir, even though I'm adopted. 
Heaven is my home. I am a member of the family of God. Thirdly and finally, Galatians 4, 4 tells us that part of the plan of God is that we believe, we have faith, that we're adopted into the family. Faith, family, and finally, it includes forever. It includes forever because God's promise is lasting and eternal. It goes from now until forevermore. One of my favorite passages is by the Apostle Paul. I don't think it's on the screen, so write down this address. It may help you when the days are dark and the nights are long. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. When I came across this verse the first time, it threw my entire world upside down. Listen to how beautiful this is. I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear me? What can separate us, church, from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. I'm sure of it, Paul says. I'm sure of it. What are you sure of? I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all the universe can separate us from the love of God. Where is it found? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, if you're in him, you can never be out of him. Being a member of the family of God is a forever deal. It's his plan. It's part of his plan. So wherever you may be this Christmas, struggling, not struggling, somewhere in between, (laughs) hear me when I say this. When God gave us the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, He gave him to us that he might teach us and demonstrate his love, his justice, his faithfulness, and his plan.